Hello, Marvelites! You're listening to Marvel's pull list for comics, some of them new, on sale August 12th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, hi, how are you? The mustache hey. is looking good, pal. Oh, thanks, it's about to die. I'm about oh, to no. scythe it off. The embodiment of death is coming for it. I'm gonna chop it down. Tucker, I wanted to put uh, a little, I wanted to shout out uh, a couple people. One of them was the uh, someone on Twitter. It's a comic shop in St. Louis, Apotheosis Comics and Lounge at ASTL Comics, which uh, in their bio, they say, quote, Missouri's only comic book store and bar, which wow. means I got to make my way there at oh, some point. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, uh, but they they tweeted at me saying that they loved the Generation X episode, especially because it lets me remind the world we have an X Man from St. Louis, Sink, and our shop is in his neighborhood. And they included um, an image of Sink's first appearance during, I believe it's Sink's first appearance or one of his first appearances during um, the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Which um, I just looked at it, I saw some Cubert art, and I was like, "Yep, this is the good stuff. Tasty, tasty." Uh, awesome. and I want to give a shout out to my friend Benji, who texted me uh, that he really liked the Generation X episode as well, um, which I got. I, there was someone else that reached out about that one. I, I guess that one really hit people. Which it's is the magic great. of of old Russ. Yeah. Put it all uh, on that guy. Yeah. I'm excited for to get reactions to Javier Garon and his episode. Um, and ever, you best. know, we're just. We've been recording some really great ones. Um, everybody who's been on the show, especially what we're going to have today when we talk about Deathlock in our reading club with Evan. Um, these have been really good. And for me, it's been extra rewarding to, especially the last episode with uh, Javier and this episode with Evan, reading books I didn't, I hadn't read before. And like just fully enjoying something that is almost brand new to me. Yeah, I can. I feel the same exact way. And we have a bunch of great stories to read this week. So why don't we dive into the new comics on sale this week? Tucker, kick it off. Let's do it. We're starting with Amazing Spider-Man number forty-six. This is written by Nick Spencer with pencils by Marcelo Ferreira, inks by Roberto Poggi, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is Sins Rising Part 2, and man, oh man, does this team not waste any time in diving straight into the action. It's been so much fun to see... um, you know, you have the—I I think when you read enough comics, and I think, you know, Wednesday Warriors and comic fans can totally relate to this, when I think you can f- pick up a book and you can flip through it in literally 10 seconds and be like, mm, yeah, this this is there's, this is really good. There's something happening here. Um, and I think a big part of that is, is just having a, a general innate sense of the rhythms going on, the pacing of a book— um, you know, it's a, a certain kind of magic that if if everyone knew how to tap into, then, you know, the, everything would, would, would tap into it. But it is so ephemeral and so difficult to define that 
um, uh, it's more of a feeling than a, anything you can define. So I bring that up because um, not only does this issue have um, a really great, almost kind of big blockbuster movie feel to me, very spidey, but it's also very, very threatening. Um, and I think um, Nick's characterization of Sin Eater is just so spot on. Some of the Sin Eater's like human moments actually make the character even scarier for me because we can see the range that Sin Eater can go into and it's really, really cool. And so speaking of the rhythms, it's not just the rhythm of this book, it's the rhythm of how this entire series has uh, progressed forward, you know, story arc by story arc, mini event by mini event, tying into big events in general, um, has just been so impressive. And um, yeah, I think Sin's Rising is... Uh, you know, I think it'll shape up to be another one of those high points in a series full of them. Um, let's move over to Captain Marvel number 19, written by Kelly Thompson, pencils by Corey Smith, inks by Adriano De Benedetto, colors by Tom Bon Valane, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Um, spoilers, if you missed the last issue, give you a moment, pause. You can go read your Captain Marvel number 18 because there's a big revelation at the end. Good, we're all caught up. Otherwise, you're going to fast forward a little bit Carol has a half-sister, and that was the big revelation, and part of what we're getting in Empire, uh, which I love, is like the story of who this woman is and what it's all about, and so Carol leaves uh, leaves L'Oreal with Chewie, Carol's cat, and has some of my favorite scenes all week long in, in this, is, you know, L'Oreal is... Trying to understand what the cat is, she looked. You know, she's like, "Oh, you're just a different intelligent being. I will talk to you and, and work with you as I would any intelligent being." Which is obviously the way you're supposed to encounter a cat. If anybody who has a cat like would tell you, they are they are definitely higher beings than us. They just <laughs> don't communicate in the same ways. Uh, as I look at one of the cats who's been on and off my lap the entire time, um, this one is is cool. It's got some neat ties to the Marvel team up story with Kamala Khan and Carol from, I think that was last year. And so you can read that on Marvel Unlimited, go to the Marvel team up. Um, and then again, every bit in here with Chewie is so great. Little touches like seeing Chewie running in the background with a fish in its mouth or rubbing up against Carol's leg. Uh, I, I gotta give huge shouts to Corey Smith here because he's doing those things, but he's also doing some really great acting. The facials throughout this are wonderful like the quizzical looks that he gives to l'oreal as she's like figuring out earth culture or um carol like sort of embracing her reality and and looking lovingly at like her, the new family member she just found it's it's amazing i love this book so so much you know she also gets to write uh dr strange's snakes which is awesome those guys are tremendous they deserve their own book I want them, I want everyone in the world to just like think of snakes and think of Doctor Strange. I completely agree. Um, and is there an organic way for me to tie that into the next book? No, outside of me using the word organic because organic reminds me of plants and animals and there's a lot of that kind of talk and business going on in Empire number five. Uh, it's uh, the story is by Al Ewing and Dan Slott. The script on this one's by Al Ewing. The art is by Valerio Schiti. The colors are by Marte Gracia. And the letters 
or by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, this is another big one. Huge, massive spoilers uh, for this issue. Uh, but there were huge revelations um, in the previous issue of Empire. Uh, stuff about Wiccan and Hulkling, which was so cool and so awesome. I, I really, really don't know how this team does it. Of balancing those kind of personal stories uh, with... A war about extinguishing the sun, you know, just like the biggest possible um, uh, kind of uh, storytelling going on right alongside some of the most intimate moments. And that's what I love here in the way that I talked about Amazing Spider-Man 46, how you just dive right into the uh, the action of it. And it has this great flow and you come out the other side. This issue is kind of the complete opposite. We enter it with just real intimacy and warmth and, uh, you know, uh, just kind of quietude that uh, is so vital to this story. And then we end up um, for the last probably 12 or 15 pages with stuff that I can't talk about because of how spoilery <laughs> it is. It is so huge. And the way that um, it's all pulled off is it's kind of one of those things where you're reading and you're like, oh, uh, oh, I guess they're doing that. You know, there's so many of those moments um, that, uh, uh, you know, are are that you witness. But somehow I think, you know, this entire creative team is so excellent at, you know, creating comics that it remains light on its feet. And that's the most impressive thing is just like you dive into a scene, you see something crazy dramatic happening and then boom, next scene. And you're and you're just like left like, oh, OK, I got to keep going i guess i guess this is the this is the pace that they're taking me forward with this and you just need to keep going and that's how the issue ends as well which i think is so fun because there is like i said incredible drama going on here literally like you know um you know the biggest possible stuff happening but you still get these great like marvel universe moments the, those things where it's just like these characters flying by the seat of their pants doing the best they can coming up with solutions as they go and you're right alongside them with it um and you know i would expect if you told me what happens in this issue to be coming out of it being like oh god like whoa that was heavy that was so intense but I actually kind of leave this issue like giddy and excited and can't wait to read what happens next. That doesn't take anything away from the drama that goes down in here. It's just the way that it's conveyed. It's the way that via these characters' voices, um, you're propelled continuously forward through the story. Um, uh, and uh, it's it's really a, a feat to behold. It's something so so incredible and i'm loving it it is so much fun it's such a unique and different and exciting way to experience such a massive marvel universe event like this yeah and without getting into spoilers um this issue also has something that we talked about with al ewing and dan slott a couple of weeks ago uh when we were talking about an old you know the old scroll story that they brought to us for reading club and something that was introduced in there as a story device and a way to mess with scrolls and it came back here and i was so excited i was like yeah we talked about that yeah, it was real fun <laughs> tucker have you ever seen attack of the killer tomatoes no come on man I, uh, I only bring that up because it's their killer you know vegetables and it fits in with yeah. the kotadi motif yeah um you should watch it it's 
it's something I mean, special. it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but there are no killer tomatoes that I can tell in Empire Avengers number two by Jim Zub, uh, written by Jim Zub, art by Carlos Magno, colors by Espen Grutenjern, letters by VCs Ariane Marr. Um, now, this one is interesting because it kind of takes place before what's going on in the main Empire book. The Kotati haven't quite assembled in a certain part of Earth where you would have seen it in um, Empire number five. So there's just a couple things there. But there's a really cool elevation for Plant Man, which like hit me. And I was like, duh, of course Plant Man should get involved in this. It makes sense. His name is Plant Man. <laughs> uh, and it's really funny into there. There's an amazing sequence in here uh, where you're inside Shanna's mind. Shanna, the she-devil, you know, sort of one of the protectors of the Savage Land. And it's gorgeous, got amazing colors in here. Um, We've talked extensively about Carlos and his work, whether we're talking about Invaders or the first issue of this. Um, He's just something special, especially. And when you give him beautiful colors on top of it, it's, it's wild. And then at the last bit of this is a big old WTF moment. No Mark Marin needed. It is just a big old WTF <laughs> moment. Uh, that I only like sometimes I say things knowing that it's gonna make you chuckle and that's all <laughs> the whole reason I say them. That was Thank you so much. Um uh can I just recommend that our listeners lock the gates before we get into our next mag, <laughs> which is Empire Captain America number two, uh, which is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Ariel Olivetti, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by VCs Ariana Marr. Uh, Ryan, you and I were both big fans of the first Empire Captain America issue. Um, uh, and I was particularly impressed with Phillips writing of uh, Steve Rogers he has um, you know I think you know there are so many different ways that someone can tackle this character and uh, there's something about the uh, the empathy that um, this version of cap I mean it's it's classic cap but that uh, just insofar as any writer has a different their own version that th- that this version of cap is imbued with such such empathy and, and such humanity. Um, this issue ratchets up everything about that, about the stakes, about, um, uh, you know, how desperate Cap is to, uh, kind of quell the danger. He's really on the ground floor of this entire battle, which is really fun because we have, uh, an incredible cosmic view of things, um, uh, in a few different books, whether that's Captain Marvel, whether that's the main series, um, uh, we have, uh, uh, though a great, you know, truly ground floor, you can feel the, um, you know, the concussive nature of this battle kind of going on, uh, on top of you here. Uh, it's really, really cool. There's also a ton of body horror in this, a ton of, you know, that kind of planty, organic um, uh, body horror that is just, you know, makes my skin crawl unlike anything else. Uh, and like I said, there's a great kind of looking up angle on this book that I think is uh, really executed well, where you feel like you're standing on a street and you're looking up at these kind of unbelievable things and they just feel like they're going to crash down upon you, whether that is the literal battles going on or whether that's the man of earth, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Uh, a cool reveal at the end of the prior um, issue that I was super into. And 
really excited to continue seeing. But uh, yeah, great stuff going on in here. I think this uh, creative team is uh, is kind of under the radar, putting together a really, really cool story here. Um, we've still got more Empire to talk about this week, uh, including Empire X-Men number three, written by Vida Ayala, Zeb Wells, and Ed Brisson, art by Andrea Brocardo, colors by Nolan Woodard, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This issue is just mayhem. Uh, it's wild. It is, again, alien plants versus mutant zombies. Then you add in horticulture, the, you know, the elderly late science ladies who are uh, fighting the X-Men at times. Then you add in a whole bunch more X-Men and it is just like wild. It's wild, wild, wild. and so much fun. Uh, at one point, Nightcrawler shows up and he says something in German and um, I, I translated, I looked up the translation <laughs> and it means holy smokes or holy moly, which is <laughs> Like the cutest thing, if you imagine Nightcrawler saying in German the translation for holy smokes when he sees something. <laughs> Just love the fuzzy elf so much. He is the best character. Another one of my highlights, uh, surprise wonderful highlights, is like all these Empire tie-ins being as damn good as they are. Totally. Our next issue is a special one. It's a special case. This issue and the next one that we're going to talk about as well have actually been previously released digitally. Um, this next one that I'm talking about, this is Ghost Spider number nine. This was released digitally on May 13th. So um, uh, you could have checked it out digitally then or now in its physical copy here. It is written by Shauna McGuire with art by It Guara, colors by Ian Herring and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This digs into uh, Gwen's uh, encounter and relationship and brewing something with uh, Johnny and Susan Storm of Earth-65 who went missing uh, in Latveria. Now they're back and now they go on this great story that I was a huge fan of that I think was like really just a perfect Gwen ghost spider book. I loved everything about it. Yeah. Uh, And as you mentioned, the next book is Hawkeye Freefall number five, which was originally released digitally on May 20th. So if you want to go to the episodes that were released uh, May 12th and May 19th, respectively, for uh, Ghost Spider and Hawkeye Freefall, full thoughts on those. Hawkeye is written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Otto Schmidt and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. And it's just if you if you didn't pick it up digitally, now's the time. Get it in print. Totally agreed. All right, the next issue that we have this week is Immortal Hulk number 36. It is written by Al Ewing with art by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Look, this I think this issue was a moment for me where I was like, if you showed me this issue right as I read Immortal Hulk number one, I would both be like, how the hell do we get there? But also, of course we get here. Of course we end up in this place. It's both the kind of like greatest extension of the like Joe Bennett body horror, just general um, horror genre that this book has been exploring, you know, so incredibly um and in such a landmark fashion but with character details and a kind of very personal bruce banner um hulk angle on it all that is 
that is so specific to this character and really so specific even to the way that Al and Joe, the entire team, have put together this story. So incredible. Uh, it was powerful and painful and, uh, you know, just just a, a, a real, real work of art. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so great. Um, uh, another great issue is Marauders. Number 11, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Uh, Look, the first two pages is is Nightcrawler, again, writing another letter to Kitty Pryde, who is still dead. And it just got me. And I almost at that point put down the comic and I was like, going to text Jerry, like, seriously, man what the hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> like fix this. I need, I need Kitty Pride back. I can't have sad Nightcrawler. Like, this is doing too much to me. I am, I have been too invested in these characters for too much of my life for you to do this, you son of a bitch. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to, I'm going to breathe. I trust in Jerry. I trust in the X team. I know this is the story and it's because I'm so emotionally invested. I know they are doing everything right. And so I, I let it happen. And, you know, you keep going on. The story unfolds and it does what it does. Um, and I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to give anything away. Uh, but, man, this book rules so hard. It's, um, it's this issue among my favorites of the Marauders run. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have a good one. Another good one. This is Star Wars Darth Vader. Number four, it is written by Greg Pak with art by Raffaella Yenko, uh, colors by Niraj Menon, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. All right, I have so much to say about this issue, <laughs> which I loved. Okay, there, there are, let me start by saying there are certain tenets of a Star Wars story from you have the monster scene, you have the villain, you have, the, you know, the, you have these things that it seems that every single Star Wars movie or every Star Wars story wants to include, wants to touch upon. And at their best, those things emerge uh, out of the woodwork. They come out of nowhere and they shock you. They surprise you. Even if you know that these things are part and parcel of a Star Wars story and that they're likely to pop up somewhere, it can still be so fresh, so exciting, so shocking. And that's what we get right from the start with this issue because... Um, We are on Naboo, and we have the big kind of Star Wars monster scene. But it's not just a Star Wars monster scene. It's like Star Wars kaiju um, between uh, 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 Darth Vader and, as Qui-Gon Jinn would say, all right, let let me do my best here. Do you hear that sound? That's the sound of a thousand (laughs) (laughs) times. Anyway. There's always a bigger fish. That bigger fish, we get to see um, Vader has been um, uh, ensnared in a trap. uh, And uh, it's Vader versus Kaiju. And that's how we start this story. It is so good. So cool. Um, And then where we go from there is just awesome. It's one of those things that is, um, you know, from the bedrock of Star Wars, um characters or elements that we know that we're very familiar with 
twisting them, putting a new spin on them, and um, making it just so exciting. I cannot talk about exactly what I mean there, but it has to do with the prequels, it has to do with Padme, it has to do with Naboo, it has to do with everything that this book has been exploring with what these couple of issues have been exploring in particular. Um, the direction it goes in is so awesome, like I said, so surprising, so much fun. Uh, and then uh, the ending, you know, I think there is there's one word that Vader says that ends this book that I think is the perfect encapsulation of, you know, you can hand this to someone and say, Greg Pak knows Star Wars as good as anyone on the planet just by the way that he constructs this moment and he presents this perfect little gift of Darth Vader to the reader um, that I just adored and it left me like tossing the book up in the air and you know jumping out of my seat and doing a little jig because it's so perfect it's so Star Wars it's so epic so Darth Vader oh man like I said I could go on and on and on and on but I won't I loved it yeah oh man this uh, give a warning be in a good mental place when you read this issue because <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, it is emotionally harrowing in the best way possible like mm -hmm. it is so good and especially if you're invested in these characters in this world and the way it's told man Oof. <laughs> so um, yeah totally all right the uh next book that we have this week is a special one this is star wars the action figure variant covers number one um with an introduction written by jess harold and then featuring the glorious art of john tyler christopher this is just a great uh tour of all of those uh, uh excellent action figure variants that john tyler christopher has been together for a very long time now so if you are a fan of this kind of Star Wars stuff, which I know I am. I know so many people are. If you love this uh, Star Wars toys, that kind of Star Wars history, that vintage Star Wars stuff, if you love the comics, it is the perfect Venn diagram cross-section. Um, so much fun to dig into. So much fun to read. Heck yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, take a trip now to some, also some galaxies far, far away, it seems, in Venom number 27. Written by Donny Cates, art by uh, Juan Gedeon with Jesus Arbatov on colors, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Juan Gedeon, man, he rules so hard. This issue is is awesome. There's a weird like fluidity and, and cool elasticity to the art here. There's like just ways that Venom's head twists around, which is just unlike the other ways he's drawn. It, it looks really cool. It kind of very manga-ish in some of the action and I, I absolutely love that venom has been really fortunate to have some incredible art over the it's you know 25 plus issues 27 issues um really ryan stegman or mark bagley you know we've had joshua kasara in there so i think juan is is like fits in perfectly especially because here we're in a very different place uh you know like there's some cool new things going on with venom in this because of location and, and circumstances and i'm really into it the last few pages of here are just like this wild spin of what's going on um give me alternative realities and twists and turns like till the cows come home and i just eat it up and uh i munched hard on this one um and speaking of big stuff happening uh 
the final issue that we're covering this week is X-Force number 11. It is written by that dastardly, dastardly man, Benjamin Percy, with art by Basil Dua, colors by Guru EFX, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, this is one of those where from literally page one, it is so full of spoilers, I can't talk about this specific scene that we kick off with. Um, it is so, so cool. I don't, it kind of, (laughs) it like defies genre in a way because it's like horrific, but so just exciting. And you're just like sprinting along with what's going on here and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, like with almost no time to think of any of the consequences. Uh, but at the same time, there are enormous consequences to what this is um this ties directly into the new status quo of krakoa of the x-men in a huge way um a way that i was not ready for uh and was so stunned by i loved it so much uh these mutant books shock you and then once you get used to that new landscape they turn it on its head and shock you again in an entirely new way keeps happening keeps happening and i have never gotten used to it i never will and i'm glad that i won't all right what, what do we got for collections this week tucker all right this week in print collections we have scream curse of carnage volume one spider gwen amazing powers spider ham apocalypse now captain marvel the many lives of carol danfers Fantastic Four Masterworks, Volume 22, Hellstrom, Evil Origins, Heroes Reborn, Captain America, uh, Star Wars, Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, Volume 2, and Symbiote, Spider-Man, Alien Reality. Yeah, some really good stuff in there. That Spider-Ham book rules, rules um, on Marvel Unlimited. We've got the uh, final issue of Spider-Man and Venom Double Trouble, which we loved. Star Wars Darth Vader. So the first issue of that, you can start to catch up. First issue of X-Men Fantastic Four. And the wrap-up of the Yondu series, which we also loved. Among others, there's, there's plenty more. Lots of good stuff this week in Marvel Unlimited. Now, um, we also have a big reading club for everybody. We have on as our guest this week, Evan Narcisse, who is... Uh, a writer, a journalist. He's done some work for Marvel, Great Black Panther Story. And of course, we're going to be talking with Evan about the Deathlock 1990 limited series, uh, which is going to be really cool as we get into the creative team and the story and and sort of the importance that this uh, book has for Evan himself. Uh, So enjoy this chat with Evan Narciss. Evan, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. How are you? I'm good, Ryan. Um, I'm good. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I've done a pull list before. In fact, nope. I'm pretty sure I haven't. I've done no. other Marvel podcasts, so I'm very, very excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. You're, you're, um, you are one of the few pe- like guests who has like done the rounds across all the podcasts. I, we need a term for that. It's not <laughs> obviously not something like an egot, but like a, <laughs> like a triple crown Marvelite or something. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll figure that out at some point. We need to get like a five timers club SNL smoking jacket, yeah. but for Marvel podcasts. I, 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 I want to get on women women of Marvel now too. Only yeah. as a support role, you know. Yeah, support. <laughs> we I don't want to take get... I don't want to take shine from anybody else, but. No. Uh, but so, Evan, we are talking about Deathlock, the 1990 limited series, uh, and this was your choice. So tell us, why'd you pick this? 
You know, it's funny. Um, I was tr- I was trying to remember like what about this series drew me in um, when I just saw it at the comic shop in 1990. Um, and as best as I can recall, it's a couple of things. Uh, first, Deathlock the character, right? Like he's one of those characters who I first encountered in um, Marvel Universe handbook, right? Like um, I hadn't read. Um, the series that he was uh, anthologized in. It was... Um, Astonishing Tales, I think? Yes, yes, yes. Astonishing Tales. Exactly right. Um, and uh, I think his Marvel Universe entry was drawn by Mike Zeck. Um, but I remember seeing that and like, oh, okay, this is weird. And you read the entry and you f- figure he's from this dystopian future. And um, like military technology... This, this experiment kind of gone wrong. All those things kind of appealed to me. And his visual, you know, it's, it's that, that red vest with the American flag on it. And you're like, well, what's, what's, this, what's, what's this all about? So I knew him from the Marvel Universe handbook, right? Um, Ohatmu, do we say that out loud? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard somebody actually say it out loud. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, is, it sounds it's, good. It's a, it's, a, it's a mouthy acronym, yeah. yeah. Um, so I knew him from there. Uh, and... Uh, when I saw this series, the nineteen ninety series that we're talking about, um, it was a Joe Jusco cover for the first issue, if I remember correctly. And you know, it's, it's funny the way your fan brain works. Like um, Jusco's a great artist. He had done uh, at least some of the covers for this Nick Fury versus Shield series that I mm-hmm. loved. So the Jusco cover and. You know, the, the the most key element in, on that cover was, like, this big muscular black guy kind of, like, bent over and, like, looking pensive. And I was like, oh, this seems different than this, than what I know about Deathlock. Like, that made me pick up the series. Um, and once I did, you know, it was, again, a totally different version of Deathlock, which is a really interesting uh, proposal, I think, at the start of that book, which is that, you know, if you knew something about the character before... Um, everything you knew was not going to apply to this version, which I found was really intriguing. And, you know, from a, a new reader friendliness standpoint, is great. I also feel like it's a great metaphor for what comics does with legacy characters, right? It's like, here's a shell, an empty robot cy- cyborg shell, and we're about to put somebody else in it, you know? It's the same way that when, when mantles get passed on or heroic identities evolve and change. So I don't know if that was intentional at the time. Knowing Dwayne McDuffie, it might have been. Um, but yeah, that pulled me in and, you know, I, I really liked, uh, that first issue, how it kind of, um, focused on the cutting edge technology of the time, right? You know, this is 1990. So like people still didn't have email, you know, um, you know, dial up modems were still like the, the, the order of the day. Right. So, um, all those things really appealed to me. Um, you know, only some of them were, were, uh, obvious from the cover, but like, uh, the character that I knew a version of before, seeing this new version come to life, having um, a black man be the new protagonist and one who kind of um, didn't fall so easily into the stereotypes um, uh, that kind of had plagued uh, other su- superhero characters in the day. Like, that all appealed to me. The fact that Michael Collins is a family man, like, I really loved. I was like, oh, wait, yeah, this is something different. And from then on, like the tension in the series between the main character being an avowed pacifist who found out that his, his research was being used on weapons technology 
and then being trapped within the weapon itself um, was great. I think that's just the kind of nugget that just energizes a whole conception of a character, and, and they really went there as the series went on. Evan, with your writing and the things that you've done, do you find this as a as a reference point? Because I feel like it, it is such an education in like concise storytelling and powerful like emotional storytelling. Does this fall into the kind of, you know, into the library of of, of kind of inspirational books um, in, in your work in fiction? Yes. Um, I mean, anything Dwayne McDuffie wrote is, is serves an inspiration for me. What's clear uh, from the outset in this series is that like, yeah, it's not reinventing the wheel. There are some concepts and some tropes that are really familiar once you start reading this book, right? So like the evil corporation, you know, the technology being used for nefarious purposes, um, civilians and government agencies being kept in the dark, like that kind of stuff, like, you know, from like Robocop on down, you know, Terminator on down, right? Like it's clear, like, this, the, the cinematic science fiction of the day was informing this book. Um, but, you know, these simple yet meaningful changes, like uh, this main character coming from a different kind of socioeconomic background, the pacifism, you know, being a, a main tenet of the book. Um, so, you know, like you compare this to Robocop and, and, and Murphy's already a cop, right? He's already somebody well attuned to the use of force you know, part of a paramilitary organization where that's normalized for him, right? Michael Collins is not, you know? So one of the things that's great about this Deathlock um, iteration is that he's always asking the computer to figure things out for him in terms of what they can do. Can we do this? Computer's like, you know, affirmative. And uh, uh, can we lift that car? Affirmative, you know? And that stuff is great because it's it's it shows this reluctance, um, not necessarily to be a hero, but like, He's trying to figure out ways to do, you know, complete his heroic kind of quests and missions in a way that does less harm, you know? And that's one of the things that's great is like, you know, he's like the, the no-kill order that they established early on in the series, maybe in the second issue when Michael finally takes control, is great. You know, it's just such a, a nice touch um, that also serves as a response to, I think, the prevailing kind of notion at the time, this is we're well into like the grim and gritty era of comics, you know, when things are turning dark, like post 1986. And, you know, you see this across superhero comics all over the landscape, right? So, like, more violent, more kind of morally gray, more bleak in, in terms of outlook. And this, this book was not that. This character wasn't that, you know. Um, Michael Collins, uh, yeah, was stressed and depressed and, 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 and impressed. To like figure out how to get back into his own human body and back to his family, but you don't get the sense that he's um, going to take Machiavellian measures to do that. You know, like he's still trying to be the best person he can possibly be. So you know, and that and 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 that speaks to Dwayne McDuffie's kind of writing approach for almost everything he did. You know. Um, um, he was a deep believer in humanism, you know, like that human agency is a, the primary force in our societies and our cultures. And the moral kind of compass that drives us doesn't come from external, external beliefs. It comes from, you know, humans themselves. Right. And you see that in Deathlock a lot. You know, like there's there's no higher power that 
Michael is appealing to in terms of the strictures that he finds himself struggling against. This is all him inspiring himself and his antagonist being motivated by needs and wants from their own kind of desires too. There's not, it's, it's all coming from us um, as human beings. And, and that's something in Dwayne's work that I respond to a lot. Yeah, we should talk about Dwayne. We will in a second. I've never read this limited series, but I remember as a kid seeing it in my local comic shop and just like the covers for each of them, because the covers are amazing. You have the Joe Jusco cover for the first one, but then you have Bill Sienkiewicz. You have Kent Williams, who is like an underrated 90s painter who I don't know that like most of our current readers would even know. But man, his stuff is striking. And then Dennis Cowan. Um, and I, I read the ongoing series because I couldn't afford, I remember the, this book was like four bucks yeah. and in 1990, when I'm like nine years old, I'm like, that looks awesome. I can't get that. I'm going to buy these three X-Men comics and this, you know, Spider-Man book. Uh, and so I read the ongoing series, uh, which is by Dwayne and Dennis. And I, I kind of, after reading this, want to go back and reread the like 16 or 20 issues that they do right after this. Cause this was freaking great. It was so good. Um, and you talked Evan about Dwayne McDuffie. Um, so what are some of your other favorite Dwayne McDuffie stories and, and anecdotes or things that you think about when you think about his writing, because he's a, like a comic prose or comic insiders favorite. Like, I don't know yeah. anybody who doesn't love Dwayne McDuffie who's in the industry, but I don't know unfortunately because he's passed and he didn't have like giant runs on x-men yeah, and stuff like yeah. that where he doesn't roll off the tip of a tongue of someone who is like a slightly more casual fan so one one of the things uh, it's important to know is that Dwayne mcduffie was an editorial staffer at marvel for uh, a couple of years um i think he started out as an assistant editor and uh, did work in Marvel, which is great. Like, Damage Control is an amazing series. And I think one of the best, you know, latter-day examples of how to use humor in superhero comics um, without making fun of the whole genre, right? Like, you read some things that are superhero humor and they feel like there's, like, an element of self-loathing in it. Um, Damage Control does not feel like that. It feels like he loves it all. But, you know, he makes the same kind of jokes you all do when you talk about your friends. Like, yeah, what, what's up with Spider-Man's webbing all over the city? Like, does that ever cause a problem? Or, you know, the core premise of Damage Control was like, who cleans up after superhero battles? You know, all that destruction. And Damage Control is a corporation that does that. And that's uh, one of Dwayne McDuffie's, I think, better known Marvel efforts. But, you know, Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cohen, Derek Dingle, Christopher Priest, Michael Davis, all get together to form Milestone Media, which is uh, uh, a wholly owned company that created the Dakota universe and had a whole suite of multicultural heroes from all kinds of backgrounds. Probably the most famous character from that um, universe is Static, which went on to be an animated series. So quick capsule about Dwayne's kind of importance about uh, to the history. From Marvel specifically, you know, I, I, I like the series that he wrote called Beyond, which was this, this weird sequel to um, Secret Wars, a 1986 book. I think it preceded the Latter-day Secret Wars um, that, that Bendis did and definitely came before Jonathan Hickman's book. But um, it's a bunch of ragtag characters who don't really know each other get transported back to Battle World. Um, and I really like it because the main character is the is, is Gravity. Um, 
uh, created by Sean McKeever, if I remember correctly, right? I, I think so. Yeah, Scott yeah. Collins was on art for art, Beyond, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you know, he's this kind of young, naive teenage superhero, and he's being pitted against like Craven the Hunter and Space Phantom and, and Deathlocks and that as well, and like it's a really great ensemble piece because it's like none of these characters are like a plus headliners right but like the group dynamic and the kind of energy of the, of the the big drama um is so great and there's this great scene where like uh the young craven uh sergey's son uh is like mouthing off to gravity and deathlock says you know acting like you're cynical doesn't me do anything you know like acting like you don't care doesn't count you know it doesn't change anything it doesn't make things any better and that's such a great uh ethos of of uh, distillation of Dwayne's ethos when he's writing superhero comics. There was a, I think Deathlock's motto um, is, uh, I forget, something about uh, you have to do what's right, not what's easiest. And, um, you know, Dwayne's personal uh, career, his professional career, rather, like is an example of that, you know. Uh, um, he, he put people on and, you know, he he fought battles, Um that a lot of people didn't want to fight or didn't want to acknowledge were there. And he's a really, you know, like you said, inspiring writer. I, I had the good fortune to interview Dwayne a few times um, during my career as a journalist. One of them was a piece I wrote for The Atlantic. And he said, uh, look, if you're writing about the human condition, you're, you're writing about economics, uh, psychology, you know, all these different things, these big isms, these big... Uh, disciplines right and 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 lenses and he's like you know uh nothing more in american society is more powerful a vector than race right and the way it's organized and the way that experience is lived by the people who are um deemed in a certain category and like if you don't write about that you're not writing about the human condition right like if you if you avoid that you're avoiding something essential and you feel that in his books you know like Deathlock isn't a book about race but like you can see the metaphor in it you know it, it's light in this initial four-issue miniseries in 1990, but in the ongoing that comes after it, it, he hits it a lot heavier. And I think in a really fascinating way, like I haven't read those comics um, for years up until this pull list episode. And I was shocked at like, oh, wait, he really went all the way in here with like, you know, uh, cybernetic um, existence being a metaphor for uh, black humanity um, in these comics. And it's great. It, it's he, he writes Misty Knight. I want that Misty Knight. And he writes in that first arc. I'm like, oh wait, I want to see more of Misty like this. Like, you know, it's subtly absurd how you know Misty walks around in X Men comics and Power Man, and Iron Fist, all these other comics, Hero Fire books, like she's a, a normal human being, right? Like, you all, yeah, I've got this robot arm, but you know, whatever, no big deal. But you know. Dwayne takes this her cybernetic existence as a point of departure and it's like, oh, no, wait, I'm actually a lot different than everybody else. And there's certain experiences I have that only people who are also cybernetic in nature are going to bond with and understand. And the whole first arc of the ongoing is called The Souls of Cyberfolk, which is a reference to The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, um, early 20th century scholar and uh you know dubois main premise in souls black folk is like you know uh, black americans experience uh an existence of two-ness you know being pulled in opposite directions by virtue of being black in america at the same time and having a living existence that is um differently ordered let's just say so 
Um, all of that is in this run, you know? Like, Misty talks about this kind of, like, secret strata of cybernetic beings that kind of talk to each other and they've been disappearing and she looks... Uh, she goes to find Deathlock to help her investigate these disappearances. Forge is in there from the X-Men, a bunch of other characters. Ultron's in there. It's a really great first arc. And it, it explores, you know, the idea of what it means to be different, even amongst other characters of the Marvel Universe who are like, yeah, Fantastic Four, you know, Thing feels like a freak. Mutants have their lives constantly facing hatred and prejudice. But even within that kind of universe... You have another population which gets struck with even more kind of outlier status. And it's 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 great. I feel like I'm talking too long, but there's a great gag in the either second or third uh, issue of that arc where Misty says, yeah, you know, we call ourselves netters, right? Um, for, short for cybernetic. And they have this big battle on Coney Island and Misty's car gets trashed and, and Devlock is like, I can't say this without laughing. <laughs> um, uh, you want to? You, you, Deathlock's like, should we try and catch a cab? And Misty's like, are you kidding me? Are you? Do you know how hard it is for a netter to catch a, 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 a cab in this city? And it's a, it's such a brilliant, like prime exemplar of Dwayne McDuffie's execution because like he he uses that term six pages back and sets it up specifically to make that joke, which is timely of the moment. It's social commentary, but it's not so heavy that you're like, oh, you're going to groan. If anything, you're going to groan at the dad jokeness of it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. But um, <laughs> it's it's such a great beat. Um, and uh, I, it's one of the reasons I, I really fondly remember this run. There's so much I want to touch on here. And it's obvious and it's no coincidence that it took a black creator to make those points and that's what that's what I came out of reading these four issues being kind of so so stunned by is it is a very simple story in in that way that you were talking about. It is a man who's trying to get back to his family. And and that's the heart of this story and that's where we are and you're we're into it like we we're talking about right from issue 1. But that's actually such a daring and expansive story that's being told here when 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 context is taken into account and that's what's so fun about it and that's what's so you know maybe counterintuitive in a way where it's just like oh a good man put in a bad situation just wants to get back to the people he loves but actually in in these very interesting and and and, and specific ways it's actually a, a great departure and, and a really expansive uh story being told it's really cool yeah, let's talk about the creators and let's see who who did this book, which is also super important because, of course, Dwayne McDuffie, uh, we talked about him, but co-writer for this and for a lot of the Deathlock ongoing after this is Gregory Wright, who um, who worked at Marvel a bunch, uh, pencils in this series by Jackson Geis, uh, a.k.a. Butch Geis and um, Dennis Cowan. Uh, the thing, I, you know, you look at th this, it's like a prestige limited series when it was released, it's like I remember it had nicer cardstock cover. It was like higher price point, all this other stuff. And it like my only, the only thing that bums me out is it's not a single creative team throughout. And I love everybody who touches it, but it's, there's a, you know, it switches a little bit from my baby is, is walking around and yelling. Uh, it switches a little bit in, in, in sort of style, but the first issues by Butch Geist with Scott Williams 
Um, just every time I see Scott Williams art, it makes me think of Wils Portacio and like his inks, uh, Scott's inks over Wils's art. It just does something really cool and really fresh to the pages. Uh, and the coloring is something that really strikes me because it's prestige. And at the time, it's like, oh, this is like the computer coloring that they were really working on in the early 90s. Evan, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. No, yeah, it's funny. I'm looking at pages right now on my second screen, and like, there is a lot of shading. There's a lot of play with the mood and the lighting in the series that you didn't see on regular newsprint back in the day. Like, you know, I'm looking at a scene in the cybertech offices, and like, you know, there's an effort made to show the computer glow bouncing on characters' faces, you know? Like, uh, the 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 tones are different that kind of sickly green computer monitor glow from glow from back in the day like is a is a prevalent theme in this series you know but also like the pops of color like there's a page in issue two where like the main bad guy is talking to michael collins's wife and she's wearing like a hot pink t-shirt and he's wearing this gray kind of formal business wear and you know like the messaging with color work um is really really different you like part of her face in the shadow part of her face is in the light and you can tell that they were really being really ambitious with what the, the different paper grade and um, the different printing technologies would allow them to do. Um, and that's, I think, what really made this book stand out. Like, I remember, it was, like you said, it was prestige formats. It was like square bound, cardstock covers. It felt like a fancy comic book. You know, yeah. this wasn't a regular staple bound floppy. And to see this kind of story presented in that way did kind of give this like a... Uh, element of like elevated presentation, right? It's like, oh wait, they're trying, they're really going for defenses with this one. Paul Mounts was a colorist here, mm -hmm. and that's super important because Paul was, I think, I think an unsung hero of, of of comics coloring. And I remember seeing his his early work a lot on cards back in the day. And again, cards better printing, you know, from Tops or or, or Fleet or whoever, like better printing processes. And he had a very painterly approach, you know, um, to his color work back in the day. And again, that comes through here. So, like, he makes he's a perfect fit for this um, project. My reading at this time, I got sucked in by the image explosion and by the Valiant explosion yes. yeah. at the time. So I look at the coloring here and then my brain goes, oh, it's colored like a Valiant book. And I <laughs> loved that, like, because it yeah. looks so different than everything at the time. And that's, I think, part of why I glommed onto this and this read was just like, man, this this book is just, it's cool for all the reasons we talked about, but it's also just gorgeous. Yeah. It's funny, I'm looking at this page from issue two when uh, Michael first wakes up, wakes up in the cyborg and it is crazy. Uh, uh, like there's all this, you know, grays and reds, like, popping and contrasting off of each other like this is nightmarish sequence where like he sees his own skeleton within the cyborg's body and it's like oh uh it's amazing um they were really swings for defenses here um um it, it, it's it's a very i think aesthetically ambitious book for what was being done at the time dennis cowan comes in for issue number three and the the book gets like the coloring wise it is dark it is just there's a darker hue to it it's a darker tone dennis's um color like art is scratchier and then you get the cool this awesome shot of nick fury in issue three with his like giant 
metallic codpiece and those huge pouches and just like those boots yeah friggin' rules it's so great uh and you know you, you get to see sort of like the where the arc for michael is going and he's like yeah. really turning things around in his brain you're watching it like process both literally and figuratively as he's working with the ai and in the deathlock uh machine um and like he's there's a great line a uh, great two panels that i love where the the machine says program complete after he's done a whole bunch of stuff and sort of like not done what the bad guys wanted him to do and he looks up at the sun and he just thinks not quite and i just love like the silence of that the the framing of that the way that whole piece comes together it's it's almost like an act break in yeah. a, a tv show or a movie and then boom we're we go right back and we we start to get into michael really saying all right now now things are going to happen for me i'm going to get my body back blah 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 yeah, you know, I feel like Dennis's, you know, work on the last two issues of this limited series are really great thematically because, like you said, Ryan, like, it is it is a tonal shift. Um, but, you know, Dennis is one of my favorite comic book artists. Uh, I love him. I, I always think about this old, dirty bastard line from a, um, from a Wu-Tang song, and they're all kind of describing who they are, um, all the members of Wu-Tang. Is I'm older, he bastard because there's no father to my style, and that's always what I feel like with Dennis. Like I feel like nobody draws like Dennis Cohen. Like he he he's takes some cues from some older artists, I believe from um, Italy. But like, you know, he's one of those artists whose style is so singular that nobody's really replicated it. Um, and and I think that makes him a perfect uh, 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 artist for this book and the, the ongoing that came after because, like, there's this mix between like chaos. And that scratchy energy in his line work, but also like this this really over the top composition of his layouts and and um, where he puts figures in his panels, and I feel like it, it, it's high drama, and um and I feel like that's where the series went after you know uh, the the limited series went, and then the ongoing started. It was like okay, we're really gonna get into some stuff. This 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 character is gonna participate. In the Marvel Universe at large, right? The miniseries kind of had him in its own little pocket, right? You know, there wasn't a whole lot of crossovers, other characters coming in. Nick Fury was about as much as you got. But once the ongoing starts, like, he's meeting Fantastic Four, he's meeting the X-Men, you know, he's he's going against Doctor Doom robots. And then the second arc written by Greg Wright is a Punisher crossover, uh, where, again, the pacifism and the the murderology of Frank Castle uh, kind of come to, come to uh, blows. So, like, yeah... Dennis is, I think, a great choice uh, for that stuff. And it might have been the first time he and Dwayne worked together. I don't know that for sure, but I think this might be their first project. It's definitely one of the early projects that they worked together. But yeah, this book was... It's weird to call it ahead of its time, but I think I I can confidently say it was was forward-looking in a way that um, I think was, was... definitely unique for for when it was published there's one question that's been lingering in my head this whole time about the name michael collins michael collins being the lesser known third uh crew member of apollo 11 
Uh, he's the one, so it was Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Michael Collins is the one who stayed in the command module and went around the moon while the other two went to the moon. Uh, I don't know. I was just so curious, like reading this in the back of my head. I was like, is there something about this kind of forgotten hero, this kind of like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, the, the unsung hero, like just in just doing the dirty work, what needs to be done, um, you know, none of the glory type of thing. I wonder if it was in any way related or if it was, you know, if this is just me putting pieces together that aren't there. You know, one of the things about Dwayne McDuff, anybody who's ever known him or worked with him will tell you, like, the dude was super smart. Um, I think he had a PhD in applied physics, like, <laughs> like ridiculously smart. Um, and, you know, I think a bit of a, a like, space travel sci-fi nut. So, like, if that's an intentional reference, I wouldn't put it past him, you know? Um, it's funny, you know, I'm reading this, this interview with Dwayne, and I, there's a point where I asked him... You know, your run on Deathlock seems to be full of allusions to the black experience. Um, and I go on, on and on, like he's literally separated from his own humanity. Um, and he answers, he starts to answer by answering, none of it was in the pitch, but all of it was intentional. Um, in Invisible Man, of course, by Ralph Ellison, was and is my favorite novel. I just read The Souls of Black Folk and was explicitly thinking about Skip Gates, the Sinkifying Monkey. So, like, again, there is this idea that Dwayne is trying to connect this comics work to a larger black literary and intellectual tradition, which is great. Um, but I'm, this is the thing I remember him saying. Foremost, though, Deathlock was supposed to be a modern-day take on Marvel's The Thing, a man alienated by his surface appearance, as well as my own commentary on the grim and gritty trend in comic book heroes. I didn't even remember this. Contrary to the fashion at the time, I wanted to do a superhero who was more moral than I, not less. Man, and it comes off it, like it comes off in the page, and you think of that last shot in issue number four of him looking at the sun again in Coney Island, being like having made this decision to be an upstanding person and to do something good and to help, and in spite of the name Deathlock, and in spite of everything like that he's supposed to be or people perceive him to be friggin' rules uh one fun thing i realized i'm looking at the credits for issue four do you see the inkers kyle baker mike oh, DiCarlo. Man. oh my gosh like again the 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 creative team here um we, we we had a long great love fest for kyle baker on the show a couple episodes ago um and just i i don't know i guess i didn't even notice it the first read of this but just you know, it's just like a magic touch across this book. Yes, very much so. Like, Calvick is another favorite of mine. If you go back and look at the old Spider-Man comics he drew way back when, back uh, when Priest was editing those books, they're, like, so great. So great. Um, but, yeah, this, this, this book is really, really awesome. And one thing I want to say, riffing on what you just said, Ryan, is that, like, one thing we consider, like, the thematic kind of construction of this book, you have to consider that, he could have gone the opposite way, right? Like, you know, Michael Collins and this iteration of Deathlock could have gloried in all the destructive power that the cyborg um, um, had at his disposal, but it never did, you know? Like, there were always limitations. There were always, like, you know, a way to find a, a, a more humane, a, a less violent uh, solution to these kinds of problems. You know, it's superhero comics, so there's got to be fights and, 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 and gunshots and the whole nine, but, like, it is 
a unique uh, territory to try and claim to find like, oh, okay, but let's let's try to do this in a way that's um, more moral. Hell yeah. I was I'm also looking at some of the books that came out at that time and just the time period of this. It's cool. It's we you know, it's funny. At this point, we also have a RoboCop book that we are we are a licensed <laughs> RoboCop comic. Really? That's that funny. we're doing. That's a crossover that should have happened. Yeah. <laughs> Mavin, always good to see you and talk to you. Same, Ryan. Thanks, Tucker. Better. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. This was great. Big thanks again to Evan. That wraps it up for us this week. Uh, this episode of Marvel's Pullist was produced by me, Ryan Panagos, along with Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Polis audio development manager. And if you didn't know, he's actually a Russian nesting doll. What's at the center? You don't. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Mark. Your universe.